In this edition of Hoopsologies in the Lab, Justin and Matt welcome author of Jumpman, the making and meeting of Michael Jordan, Johnny Smith. Johnny's book discusses how Michael Jordan's path to greatness was shaped by race, politics, and the consequences of fame. This is a fantastic chat, and Johnny's book, I think, covers an aspect of Jordan's career that's not seen in The Last Stance or other books that are written about Jordan. So this is a great chat. If you want to kind of get a different look of one of the greatest athletes who's ever lived. So now, Johnny Smith. He is the author of Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan, which is available now at your local bookstore. We welcome Johnny Smith onto Hoopsology. Welcome, Johnny. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on to the show. And before we just hop into the book, we we're a show about basketball culture and the connections to the game with our guests. So we like to ask, what is your favorite basketball memory or your first basketball memory? Either way you want to take it. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I think my first basketball memory is 1991 when the Chicago Bulls won the NBA championship. I was 10 years old. I was a kid growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. And I think that probably shaped my motivation to write this book about Michael Jordan, that he really was a part of my youth. You know, growing up in the suburb of Chicago, Jordan defined the city. You know, there was no other athlete that was so linked to his identity as Michael Jordan. And of course, 1991 is the year of the Gatorade Be Like Mike campaign. And I was part of that generation of kids that wanted to be like Mike. I felt um connected to jordan a lot of kids and of course that's something i write about in the book i don't put myself in the book necessarily but i try to explain what that meant what that moment meant in american culture in american history and uh jordan career as well we can talk about that later but i think really when i was 10 that was the first time that i was following the nba playoffs following the bulls journey and how could you not? You couldn't escape that moment in Chicago. Everyone was cheering for the Bulls. It was all about beating the Pistons, and of course, then uh, dethroning Magic Johnson as the king of the court. So, can you set the table of the NBA during that time span? Because uh, Matt and I, a um, little bit younger, but shared the same feeling you do for Michael Jordan, a hundred percent. But for like a lot of the younger fans out there, that you know, they're just watching Jordan. YouTube clips or just watch the last dance. He kind of set the table of like the NBA specifically at that time in terms of the league and how much Michael Jordan met um, just compared to now where there's so many different uh, superstars and just we're in this era of social media. Uh, back then, Jordan was like the center of not only uh, basketball, but also just the sports world in general. Totally. I think it's a great way to put it. There had never been an athlete who was so well known around the world. I think the closest that I could compare him to would be Muhammad Ali, that in the 60s and 70s, Muhammad Ali was a global figure. He was known in Europe. He was known in Africa. He was known in Asia. He was, Ali was known around the world. But, of course, Ali, at his height, you know, being heavyweight champion, fighting abroad in the 60s and 70s, he fought a handful of times a year. By the time Jordan wins that first championship in 1991, there are hundreds of millions of people who are watching the NBA Finals via satellite. So the satellite age really transforms the reach of Jordan's audience, the reach of the NBA in ways that did not exist a decade earlier when Matt Johnson and Larry Bird arrived uh, with the Lakers and the Celtics. So it's a transformational moment 
when Jordan wins that title in 91. The other thing to keep in mind um, for your audience, I think, is that, you know, a lot of young people probably recognize the Jumpman logo. They buy Air Jordans, retro Air Jordans. They buy the Jumpman gear. When Jordan signs his first endorsement deal with Nike in 1984, it's a totally different landscape than it is today. We could probably rattle off a couple dozen basketball players, NBA players who have their own endorsement deals. Uh, there's not a demand for Michael Jordan to sign a shoe deal. David Falk, his agent, has talked about how he really had to push to get those meetings that we see in the motion picture air where Jordan and his family, his parents, they meet the folks at Adidas, they meet the folks at Nike. That's all true. But before that, NBA players did not have a market where they could really pitch themselves to the shoe companies. You know, Adidas at that time in 84, they had basically cornered the commercial landscape with the biggest stars in the NBA. They had deals with Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas, Julius Irving. But all those guys wore the same shoe, just different colors that matched their uniforms. None of them had their own shoe named after them. None of them had their own apparel line. What Nike was doing was truly innovative, and it was an enormous risk. Even though Jordan had been an All-American at the University of North Carolina, he had won a gold medal uh, with the United States Olympic team in Los Angeles in 1984. No one knew that he was going to be this spectacular, dominant force in the NBA and that he would enjoy such popularity across the country. But as I'm sure many viewers know from watching Air or The Last Dance, the Air Jordan sneaker takes off. And he becomes a cultural phenomenon in ways that we have never seen before. And that Nike deal, I think, is really foundational for David Falk because he leveraged that to show McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Chevrolet that, look, you are going to benefit from the Nike deal because Nike's going to put Jordan on television in these commercial ads. And it's going to enhance his profile. And you won't have to work as hard and invest as much money in Jordan. When the Air Jordans take off in that first season, the other companies think there's a we've made the right decision, right? They're feeling really good. They also got in on this young phenomenon. And the Jordan Foundation as a, as a cultural figure in 1985, 1986, it really grows rapidly in ways that were unexpected. So I guess that's my major message to, to your audience is to think that no one predicted this. This was not inevitable, particularly because – there were not a lot of endorsement opportunities for black athletes, period. You know, that was also rare. We can talk more about the role of race in Jordan's career um, as the conversation continues. And so from what you're saying, I mean, there there is so much investment in Jordan before he even wins that one title. And I assume at, at the time, you know, he wins that title. We see the narrative stemming from, you know, when you mentioned when he was drafted in the 80s, kind of the golden age of basketball through that Jordan era. But where is he in terms of how the media is talking about him after that very first title? Because he hasn't he hasn't completed, obviously, even one single three-peat, let alone two. Right. He He's a sportsman of the year for Sports Illustrated in 1991. And SI devoted three long pieces in that issue to Jordan. He's on the cover in a hologram, um, which is really interesting to look back at, to look at the, that was another way for Sports Illustrated to, to uh, use technology to project an image of Jordan. 
I think one of the things that's really important to understand is how important image was in the late 80s and into the 90s, uh, a manufactured image. And that the sporting press played a role in that in creating this idea of Jordan as a hero, not just as a great basketball player, but as a hero. So if you read that, that special issue of Sports Illustrated with Jordan on the cover as the hologram, the sportsman of the year, you see these profiles. And Jack McCallum, who was then the great writer of SI, he writes about how, you know, he is unquestionably the most famous athlete in the world. And in that same issue, David Halverson talks about how Jordan is the athlete of the satellite age. Now, if you know anything about David Halberstam, he'd been a reporter dating back to the late 50s and 60s, all the civil rights movement. He covered popular culture. And he said that he'd never seen fame like this since Elvis, you know, where mobs of people just lost their minds when they saw Elvis. And it was the same for Jordan. Uh, one of the things that stands out, a story that stands out for me, is that um, on the, in the beginning of the 91-92 season, so this would be the, the season where the Bulls ultimately win their second title against the Portland Trailblazers, in the preseason, the Bulls had, a, had an exhibition game scheduled in New Orleans against the Denver Nuggets. Okay, so there's no NBA team in New Orleans at that time, and it's the night of a World Series game. It's a Saturday night. LSU was playing Florida State football. It's a big football night in, in the state of Louisiana. And 35,000 people showed up to the Louisiana Superdome to watch this meaningless exhibition of Michael Jordan against the Denver Nuggets, right? Where he plays, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was. I think that speaks to the enormous interest in Jordan in this moment and how his fame was growing. And of course, he can't go anywhere on the road now. His life has changed. He cannot leave the hotels. He's a prisoner of his own fame. And so what's happening to Jordan, I write about this in, in the last part of the book, is that he becomes disillusioned with celebrity. He becomes disillusioned with the fact that, you know, he can't go anywhere. And the mob of people, no matter where he goes, that, that they want a piece of him. And I think it was harder and harder for him to deal with. And it becomes hardened as well because the press has changed. The press corps has changed. When he came to uh, the NBA in 84, he's playing in Chicago. Of course, the Bulls aren't any good. But most of the writers in the locker for the game, they're the beat writers from Chicago. That's who's there. And he develops a rapport with those guys. They're basically all men. Um, and he trusts a lot of those reporters. But what happens is by the time he wins that first title, the press corps has changed. There's foreign press. There's press from New York and L.A. and every major market in the United States that's showing up now. Television cameras, photographers, they surround his cubicle. And those faces of those reporters, they're not just the local beat guys. They're anonymous. And they ask tough questions. They're more probing. They push him a little bit more. They want to know more about his private life. And again, Jordan really armors himself. And he doesn't want to keep feeding his publicity machine. And so I think he would continue to wrestle with that. And I, I think that contributes to him walking away from the Bulls um, after the 93 season, uh, that he's burned out, um, among other things, of course. But I think that contributed to him being burned out. And he talked about it, actually, uh, during the 1991 season in Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules. He's complaining at one point after one game that he's tired of being used. He's tired of being used by Jerry Reinsdorf from the Bulls. He's tired of being used by the NBA by all of the companies that he's a spokesman for. He just, in the press, he just feels like everybody uses him. 
and that his life is not his own. And so I think at the heart of my book, Jumpman, one of the themes I'm trying to explore is what happens when a person becomes a product? Like that's the story of Jordan. He has become a product. And I think we see that both in the documentary, The Last Dance, when he is trying to remind America that he is the greatest of all time, that he is the GOAT, and he's an icon in ways that no one can match, not LeBron or anybody else when it enters the conversation. In the film Air, right, he's, we don't even see his face in that film. We see the back of his head. And that's enough for audiences who raved about this motion picture because he's an icon. We recognize the back of his head. That fills in, and nothing else has to be said in that film about him. I think that, you know, there's a lot missing in that film, but I digress. I want to ask, in this era of just athletes in general with, with social media, and I know you can relate to this, Jordan, is, it's almost like he's a, a godlike figure, for a lack of a better term. And I'd be very interested to see how this, the, the kids now view Jordan, you know, in terms of how we talk about them compared to when they grew up with Kobe and LeBron and, and Iverson and the age of just social media. And I, where I'm getting at is, this, do you think of Jordan becoming, you know, a product and becoming literally a symbol that you see in all sports? Do you think that athletes now or in the future have the potential to kind of reach the heights that Jordan did in terms of being that global symbol or do you think just the attention of just humans just in terms of like how many things there are just to consume um that's out there in terms of social media in terms of technology that that's literally impossible right right i hear what you're saying you know we our our media is much more fractured now right yeah. there's more avenues for uh entertainment than there was in the age of jordan right um the big thing that changed during his career there's two technological changes. One is cable television, uh, and the other is satellites. So the global audience that we we're talking about earlier. So remember too that in '91, um, when when Jordan wins that first title, uh, this is the end of the Cold War. So what's happening is that you have these new markets that were closed previously. They were under Soviet control, basically communist control. Those markets become open now to the NBA. So this was a new frontier for exporting American popular culture. And we see this, of course, really in 92 with Dream Team, the US Olympic team, with Jordan and Magic and Bird and David Robinson and Carl Malone and Buckley, and just a remarkable cast. And that was pathbreaking. Now, when the biggest stars in the NBA compete on a global stage for Team USA, it's not really news, it's an expectation. So, you know, Jordan's generation of stars, they set a standard, new standard for a lot of things in terms of how they presented themselves to the public as endorsers, uh, playing as professionals in the Olympic Games, where when Jordan played in the Olympics in 84, the United States did not have pros playing, right? So there was a real change there in terms of who was competing in, in the Olympics. But in terms of, you know, the current generation of NBA stars, even though I think our, our media landscape is more fractured, I think there's more opportunities. You know, what we see in terms of NBA players connecting with their fan base, with their consumer base, 
I think they're able to personalize their stories in more ways than Jordan did. Uh, we see it from the way they engage on social media with Instagram or Twitter or doing something for the Players' Tribune or participating like LeBron has that show. Uh, I forget what it's called. But it's like a barbershop. They sit down. Yeah. I think it's on HBO. Honor the Rebel, so, yeah, yeah, thank you. So my point is simply that I think that the, the current generation of stars are more willing to a certain extent to let people into their space. Now, of course, there are limits, right? Um, but I think with LeBron, there's a little bit more of an informality uh, with some of the conversations he's willing to have that Jordan's players, Jordan and his uh, era, they didn't do that in the same way, right? So that's part of what made Last Dance, I think, such an attraction, is that this film that had been sitting in an NBA warehouse in New Jersey for years and had never been seen by the public, this archival footage had suddenly released and now we're in the Bulls locker room. Well, you know, we, we get access to the Lakers locker room at different moments or in the huddle in ways. That's part of the way the NBA tries to take the fan closer to the game. It's more intentional to bring you as close as possible to the action. So I think there's a lot, there are different um, ways that fans enter into the space that the NBA players allow today than they did in Jordan's era, if that makes any sense. Johnny, I, I think, and you, you might disagree and that's fine, but I think there, because of the expansion of media uh, and, and the coverage that's out there, I think there's, there's a lot more nuance maybe um, among the population consuming it and in the media in general. My question would be, do you think this sort of casting and marketing a brand as, as like a hero? Do you think this is kind of, I mean, we saw with Kobe, very clean cut image to start had some some legal issues some things that damaged his his brand for a little while certainly and, and then kind of was able to rebrand with black mamba which had very positive like work ethic messages but do you think it's unfair to market athletes as heroes given that we are human beings as are they um and do you think we will see a turn to that in the future or that type of trend return again yeah, no, I think you and I are on the same page in that it's unrealistic to think that these athletes are flawless. You know, I think that's one of the major lessons of studying Jordan. I, uh, mm. I idolized him as a kid, but I was a kid. But one of the things I try to point out in the book is that Jordan was the first athlete, particularly black athlete, where corporations marketed him directly to children. They used children is commercials and this was designed to soften jordan right to personalize him to humanize him and it was really useful in these commercials where here you have this black man who's surrounded by kids of different races that's why i think the be like my gatorade campaign the narrative of it is so powerful is then have jordan surrounded by boys and girls white kids black kids kids of all ages ages and ethnicities and nationalities um, at a time when America's becoming increasingly diverse, see increasing in the, the 80s and 90s, more and more immigrants come to the United States from Asia and from Mexico. And so the face of the country, so to, in some ways, is changing. 
But the NBA and Gary, they're positioning Jordan as this great black hero who brings all these folks together on the court, right? That's the power of Michael Jordan in this pluralistic society is that he's the unifying force. But of course, we should remember part of what enabled him to be cast as this hero is that he didn't remind people of his blackness. You know, he wasn't out here talking of racism in Chicago or his, the racism he confronted as a kid in the South in Wilmington, North Carolina. He wasn't an outspoken critic of politicians and uh, public policy. He wasn't talking about inequality. He didn't do any of that, right? And so that made him more acceptable for a certain segment of white America to say, yeah, it's okay for my white kid to look up to Michael Jordan. He's not a rabble rouser. He didn't harbor any uh, racial animosity. And so it made him safe. It made him non-threatening. And so when I talk about this idea of him becoming a hero, race is very much a part of that conversation. We cannot separate the two. And it's interesting. In 1984, when we were talking about the Olympics, when he uh, has this breakout moment with Team USA and he signs with the Bulls, Nike, sports writers start calling him this all-American hero. They don't call him a black American hero, they call him the all-American hero. And that was really part of this conservative age, the age of Reagan. You know, the 84 Olympics was this moment where the country celebrated this mythology around American exceptionalism. And there's Jordan wearing the Team USA jersey on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He's linked to this patriotic moment in America. And so that really helps carry him into the league, I think, and present him as this all-American figure. Now, what's interesting is that in the summer of 91, when the Dream Team is being formed, Jordan doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to play in the Olympics again. As we were talking about earlier, he burned out in that moment. He thinks, you know, I've got a gold medal. I don't have anything to prove. I want to relax in the offseason. I want to go golfing, check out from the media. And he's criticized. There are some critics in the press who say, you know, everything you have, owe to this country, right? And that's part of a, 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 a longer narrative, a longer history where black athletes have to show their gratitude and they have to show that they're patriotic. And there's this expectation that he will represent America and American democracy in 1992. And that pressure and pressure from guys like Magic and Charles Barkley, ultimately, I think, compels him to feel like I have to do this. And but he didn't really want to go. Final question for you, Johnny. Um, what do you want readers to take away from your book? There's been so many um, stories about Jordan. Uh, what makes your story unique? And then once readers pick up the book, um, what is the takeaways you want them to just go away thinking about? Yeah, I, I wrote this book because I wanted readers to think about the role that race played in the history of the NBA, particularly in the Jordan era. Um, how Jordan developed this mystique or this aura uh, in crafting his image to develop this brand that we've been discussing tonight. But also that there were implications to the silences. You know, he was unwilling to speak out. You know, when you have this platform, uh, it matters what you say, and it also matters what you don't say. And so I wanted readers to have a greater appreciation of how his experiences and trying to break through in the business world as this African-American spokesman, it changed him. Fame changed him. 
And so I think this book is very much about how he created that mystique, how race played a role, his racial conscience played a role in the way that he presented himself to the public, and also how the public saw him as a hero. And I think that's a conversation that is lost in The Last Dance. It's not really a focal point. It's kind of moved pretty quickly. You know, he's asked by the producer and the director, you know, why doesn't he endorse Harvey Gantt in 1990? He gives this explanation that he had this tunnel vision. Um, I think that's part of the story, certainly. He did have tunnel vision. He was very much in his career. But I also think it's more deeply rooted in his youth, his experiences as a young Black man, and that he chose to focus on basketball because he felt like he had something to prove. That was the arena where he could control his destiny. At least that's the way he felt in his, in his mind. But once he enters this debate stage, if you will, where politics and race are being discussed, he can't control that conversation so easily. And that's uncomfortable for Jordan. You know, Phil Jackson talked about how as a leader, Jordan was someone who, he just had to have the ball in his hand, right? He wasn't someone who was gonna give a rah-rah speech. He had to be in charge. He had to be in control. And so the things that you see in the book is that there's this tension in Jordan's life on and off the court. He wants to maintain control and independence. He doesn't want to be bound to any system that Phil Jackson wants to employ in the confines of the team with the triangle offense. And he does not want to be bound to any public expectations of what kind of public figure he has to be, that he has to be a a spokesperson for civil rights or any other political cause or any other uh, Senate candidate in North Carolina. He wants to be his own man. So I try to uh, explain to readers, you know, the sources of that drive, the, where it comes from, that he has this motivation to maintain that independence and to also uh, think through why he mattered so much to different segments of American society. So, um, I hope I answered your question. It might have been a long-winded answer. No, no, no. That was a great answer. Uh, Johnny, thanks for your time. Truly appreciate it. Can you please let our audience know where they can find you on social media, whatever uh, products, excuse me, whatever projects you're working on, and anything else yeah. you want our audience to know about? Yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at SportsHistProf, which stands for Sports History Professor. I, I'm a history professor at Georgia Tech. I teach courses in American history and sports history. And... Um, I've always been interested in the history of American sports, where uh, politics and race intersect with sports. So the next book that I'm working on has to do with Joe Lewis, who was uh, the great heavyweight champion in America in the 1930s and the 1940s. He was also the most famous black American at that time. And the story is about his role during World War II and how the United States government uh, basically employed Lewis in the army to be this uh, propaganda figure to promote racial goodwill at a time when the U.S. Army was segregated. So the, talk, the book is, is going to explore how the war changed him. He was not known for being uh, a vocal proponent of civil rights. He played a much more symbolic role before the war, but the war changes him. The things that he sees in those segregated camps motivates him after the war to be more outspoken and to use his voice and his platform as a veteran um, and it, it's a fascinating story. He connects with Jackie Robinson, where they're both stationed in Kansas. Uh, he becomes in, involved with Lena Horne, who at that time was the most black actress in Hollywood, and they're carrying on an affair. So we take him to Joe Lewis's world inside the military camps. We follow him uh, when he meets Jackie Robinson. We take you to Hollywood and what's going on out west and how these films are being made featuring Joe Lewis to propagate this image of America as this great democracy. And yet, of course, 
there's this incredible hypocrisy going on as well. So I think it's going to be a fascinating story to tell, and I'm excited about it. And uh, hopefully readers will check it out in a couple of years when it comes out. Fantastic. Johnny, thank you very much for your time. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. Good to meet you both. Thank you for listening to Hoopsology presented by Boss Life. If you have comments or questions about this episode, please email hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Also, leave us a review on iTunes and follow us on all social media platforms.